said that in the Torah itself, they're not called Menoch. What are they called in the Torah itself? The Mabo, I think. Uh, a flood. They're called floodwaters. But when in Yeshayahu, in the prophecy of Yeshayahu, when he's speaking in the name of Hashem about the flood, he says that I have promised you that I will never bring Menoch to the world again, the waters of Noach. So we see that within Tanakh, these floodwaters are referred to under the name of Noach. Well, we, we know why on a simple level, because Noach is the one who saved humanity from the flood. Um, but we've been discussing now, that's where we ended off, on a deeper level, Noach comes from the word, what does Noach mean? Good morning. Rest. Rest, Rest right. Um, and we see it all the way in the beginning of creation and Breshit, when it says Vayishpot Vayomashvi, that the Aramaic translation for Vayishpot, and he rested, is Venach. Venach means and he rested. So we are about to ask a question, which is how can we call the floodwaters which destroyed the entire world waters of rest, may not be waters of rest. And how can we call challenges which we said correspond to this flood restful, right? Um, before we get to that, we're gonna discuss briefly the idea of what's called the higher level of rest versus the lower level of rest. And then we're gonna get into our big question about the flood. Why did the flood have to be this way? So we, bear with me, we'll be doing quite a bit of reading inside today, but again, we have the English on the right for those who want to follow in English. We have vowels for those who want to follow in the Hebrew. If you are following in the Hebrew and you want a translation, I know you have next to but if you want something, a literal translation, just stop me, okay? Um, so that you can get it down. So we're in the middle of page seven. We said, we thus see that the name Noah is connected to season from work and resting, like Hashem rested on Shabbat, on Shabbos. And then it says, Umasha Katuba, and the fact that it says, Noach, Noach, Beit, Pa'amim, Noach, Noach, twice. Do you guys know where it says Noach, Noach, twice? It actually says it with a, with, a, with a comma. So within the context, it doesn't look like it's saying it twice, but it says all the way in the beginning, it says, Eile to'al dot Noach, Noach ish tzadik. These are the descendants of Noach. Noach was a righteous person. Right? So there's obviously a comma there. These are the descendants of Noach. Noach was a righteous person. But if you look at it, Straight, it says, Ella told us, Noach, Noach, Ish Tzadik. It says Noach twice in a row. They, don't, they do that with, like, in the Bereshit, right? Like, because, like, when they were saying, like, signs of food, because, like, no one. Um, in Bereshit, in which context? <coughs> at the end, like, the. At with Asaph? No, um, what's it called? When they were. Okay, never mind okay. Are you saying that they, they do that again, that they say the name twice? And we see it also with Avram, that Hashem called Avram twice, Avram, Avram. There's a significance when it says it twice in a row. Here, what it's teaching us is the fact that it says Noach, Noach, is that there's two levels of Noach, there's two levels of rest. And again, Noach, on the surface level, what he represents, um, he, he's, a, he's a complicated guy. Um, but we're looking all the way what he represents spiritually, and he represents, um, he represents the concept of rest. And within the concept of rest, there are two levels. So, Masha Katuv Noach Noach Beit Pamim, the fact that it says it twice, Heim Naicha Zeilai, this is referring to a higher level, a rest for above, but Naicha de Tatai, and rest for below. So, the Medrash actually asks a question why does it say Noach twice? Right? It doesn't have to. It could have said, these are the descendants of Noach. He was a righteous person. Why does it say the name twice? The Medrash says, Naicha Zeilai, because he brought rest above. When I had time, we brought rest below. So on the simple meaning, we're obviously going to go all the way down to the Hasidic interpretation, but on the simple meaning, it means that he brought rest above to the angels. This is what the Medrash explains. 
because until Noah came along, the angels from creation were turning to Hashem and saying, what have you done? How could you have created a world in which people are so corrupt? And they were not resting. They were not resting from their complaints against God to basically destroy the world because humanity was not acting the way God had intended. And Naishad the Tatoi, and he brought rest to those below. He brought rest to those who live in this world because because of Noah, we have been promised that Hashem is never going to bring a flood that's going to destroy the entire world again, as we discussed yesterday. So the the interpretation of why it says Noach, Noach, according to the Medrash, is he brought rest above and rest below. And we're going to see that this represents, now Kabbalistically, on a deeper level, to a concept of what's called Shabbat Tata'a and Shabbat Ila'a. A lower level of Shabbat. Shabbat also represents rest, the day of rest, and a higher level of rest, as we'll see here. Shehu Bechinat Shabbat Tata'a. This is represented, the higher level of rest and lower <coughs> level of rest, of a lower level of Shabbat, the Shabbat Ila'a, and the higher level of Shabbat Sheyiyeh La'atid, which will be in the future, Shenekrai Biyom Shekula Shabbat, which is referring to the day that is all Shabbat. What's the day that is all Shabbat? We said yesterday. When Mashiach comes. We said now Shabbat ends on Saturday night and Sunday. We're back to the work week. So it's rest, but it's not a permanent rest. We will have the state of permanent rest when Mashiach comes. And it's an interesting thing to think about because what are we celebrating when we celebrate Shabbat? Why do we have Shabbat? I mean, it's rest from like the work week, but it's all, I've also heard it's like a taste, like it's like a taste of Olam Taste of Olam that's beautiful. And what, where, where does, who, where does this concept of Shabbat come from? Who celebrated the first Shabbat? Hashem. Hashem. Right, exactly. Hashem rested literally from creating, from the work of creating the world, whatever that looks like for Hashem, right? Um, on the seventh day. And therefore we rest on Shabbat. So you can ask the question, Hashem finished creating the world on the seventh day, so why is it not always Shabbat? Why do we go back to the weekday again, Sunday again? And um, this is very much those who are learning the Mimer uh, that we just learned before, the Breshit Mimer, where we discuss the idea that we are partners in creation with Hashem when we elevate the physicality around us. Creation has not finished yet, so Shabbat cannot be complete. Creation, even though Hashem rested on the seventh day from <coughs> first step of creation, we are continually creating the world together with Hashem, refining the world, revealing the truth of Hashem in this world, which will lead to the ultimate rest when Mashiach comes, and then it will be a permanent rest. We will not go back to Sunday again. We will not go back to, um, we will not go back to, to work, because the purpose of the world will have been completed, of creation will have been completed. So we see, when we speak about Shabbat Tata'a, the lower level of Shabbat, it is not completely Shabbat. We're going to get to later in the Mimer. As we know, Shabbat does not, does not continue eternally. Shabbat ends every single week. So now that we understand that Noach represents rest, that the May Noach represents waters of rest, and that there are two levels of rest, let's put that aside. And now the Avatarabi is going to ask the question. The question of Mimer Rabin, the question of Parshat Noach, which is, Seemingly, it is not understood in Yan HaMabol, the idea of the Mabol. And what, what do you think the big question on the Mabol is? We mentioned it yesterday. What's like the most not understood part of the whole Mabol, of the flood? Why God did that if he just <coughs> could like, stop giving life to the tormented? Right. 
we know that God has many, many, many ways to make the world either cease to exist or to punish the wicked, right? Why did he do it in this way? Why with water? Why with a flood? Why kill ev not only every body and every sinner, but everything, right? Every, the entire world was destroyed, right? Not only the animals, but also the, the, the landscape, everything. The physical world was destroyed as well. Why did he do it this way? We know that God is continually bringing the world into existence, and all he has to do is stop bringing the world into existence, and it'll stop being. Why did it have to come back this way? So this is, this is the question that we'll see inside. <coughs> and it's a question we ask also when it comes to the ten plagues, which we'll get to later, later. Um, why did God have to bring ten plagues to punish the Egyptians specifically that way? God could punish in any way that he wants. So there's always a purpose to the way God chooses to punish. So as we see here, If the purpose of the flood was only to remove and to destroy the people who were sinning, why was it necessary to make such a big deal, to make so much noise? Is it not true that in one moment, it was in the ability of Hashem to just make them disappear? Even without the flood. So now we're going to get to the answer. Before we get to the answer, does anyone want to venture? There's many answers. Donald Trump's going to bring one. But does anyone want to try and think why God would specifically destroy the world in this way? Why specifically through a flood? I mean, my mind kind of like connects it to the whole idea of like big flood, the idea of like, <coughs> I don't want to say purifying, because I feel like that's not exactly the right term, but kind of like just re- I've heard mikvah be compared to like a rebirth of yourself, so maybe like not necessarily like recreating the world, but kind of just like giving it a new beginning. That's exactly what the Dalton says. Oh really? Yep. Good job. Yep. This wasn't this wasn't like a, who could get it right, but that is what that is exactly what Dalton says. That just as water purifies, right? Since the beginning of time, water has purified. That's the role of water in Judaism. The water was there not only to destroy the world but to purify the world, and as you said, to give it like a rebirth, right? A new, a, a new start. So it says, "Ach be'emet." This is exactly it. The truth is, taher et So we actually do use the word here, yeah, purify. That the mabul came letaher to purify the land. The purpose of the flood was not to destroy or to punish; it was to purify. Um, were the waters in the flood connected at all to the rivers in Kanaidim? Yes. There's a med I think it's a medrash that says that the rivers were opened up and that the waters um, from these rivers, I've heard a medrash like this, um, just completely were unleashed onto the world. In a way, they had been channeled until then and they were channeled afterwards, but in that moment, they were completely unleashed. The upper waters and the lower waters were unleashed onto the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as we say, Shanemar, as we see, why did Hashem want to purify the world? Because it says in Parshas Noach, Ki Hamas, because the world was filled with Hamas, which is an interesting term. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a debate what Hamas means, but most commentaries explain that it means stealing or corruption. And we also know that Hamas 
has, you know, community chosen an interesting name. Um, the, but it says clearly in the Pasuk that the world became full of corruption. And it says Haaretz. It doesn't say the people. It says the land. The corruption ran so deep that the land itself had become corrupted. And so everything, not only the people, not only the animals, not only the insects, but the land itself had to be purified. Then it's Kalkala Ma'od, it became very, I guess, corrupt, dirtied. The Hayanitzrach Latara. Oh, here it translates uh, Hamas as violence. Some places are translated as, as stealing or as, as violence. And it needed to be purified. The Lizot Bahamabuldafka, page 9 at the top. And this was the purpose and the reason for the flood. Because it came with water, right? God destroyed with water. He could have destroyed with fire, could have destroyed with wind, could have destroyed by just making everything cease to exist. But he destroyed with water because the purpose wasn't destruction. The purpose was in order to purify those who were impure. As it says, This is the same thing that we see with a mikvah. A mikvah is a body of water that purifies. And there is a minim, minimum amount of water that there has to be in a mikveh in order for it to be kosher. And that amount is 40 se'ah. A se'ah is like, is like two something liters. How much is, not liters, um, gallons. <coughs> gallons like this much, right? Just a gallon. I once I accidentally ordered a bottle that was a gallon because I don't know gallons. We don't, it was like this big. So like a se'ah is like this amount. That has to be 40 se'ah. Um, in order for the mikvah to be kosher. And we see that how many days and nights did the flood last for? 40. 40 days and 40 nights, which are corresponding to the 40 seah measurement that's necessary to purify in the mikvah. We also see, it's not brought here explicitly, but we, see, we know that the rain only stopped once the peak of the tallest mountain was covered. Because we know that when you... Sorry? No, I'm saying, oh my God. Yeah, oh, okay, I thought you had a question. Yeah. So, so just as halakhically, in order to be purified from a mikvah, you have to be completely, completely covered, right? Not even a hair can be out. So to not even the peak, the tip of a mountain was left outside of this water. So the entire world was, so to speak, immersed into a mikvah for 40 days, 40 nights, corresponding to the 40 se'ah, completely, <coughs> all the way to the tip of the highest mountain. Because the purpose of the flood was not destruction or punishment, it was purification. Okay, so this is a very, very different way of looking at the flood, and it's also a very, very different way of looking at, as we're going to see, at the challenges of our life, which are represented by the waters, by the Mayan Raven that can come consume us and, and threaten to drown us. So we see here, Shehima Taherate Tatame, 40 Se'ah is the amount of water that's necessary in order to purify those who are impure. <coughs> Excuse me. Kamoken, so too, Hayahamabo, the flood came, Ba it came, Taher et in order to purify the entire land, as it says, Zarakti Tohorim, and I poured upon you purifying waters, Utahartem, and you have become purified. And we spoke about this briefly when we were learning about Yom Kippur, that there's two, two levels of purification. There's a level where somebody enters the mikvah themselves, mikvah. And then there's a level where you actually need to have water sprinkled on you, right? We said that the high level of impurity from coming in contact with a dead person is not enough just to go to the mikvah, but actually it's necessary to have the water mixed with the ashes of the, of the red heifer to 
to be poured by somebody else onto you. And we discussed, this is a side tangent, but we discussed that there's two, two levels of impurity. There's a level where you can, you yourself can go to the mikvah, right? We can go to the mikvah on our own. Um, now that, you know, there's, there's, not now, but the rabbis put in place that when a woman goes to mikvah, she has to have somebody uh, watching her to make sure it's kosher. But according to, according to just like the, you know, the basics of the law, um, you can go to mikvah by yourself. Um, and we know that when men go to the mikvah, they, they don't need somebody watching them. And in the case where somebody had a lesser impurity, they needed to go to the mikvah in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, nobody had to watch them. They just went by themselves, which represents the idea that there's some impurities that you can, you can get rid of on your own, right? Um, that you can instigate the purification process. But then there's a higher level of impurity, which is represented by tumat met, right? Coming in contact with a dead person, which you actually need help in purifying. And that is the concept of sprinkling. Nobody was able to sprinkle the ashes of the paral demand with the water on themselves. It had to be done by somebody else. And that represents that we need help sometimes. And we see that here with the, with the flood. The world didn't enter itself into the mikvah. Hashem poured, so to speak, the mikvah onto them, which is represented in this verse in Yecheskel. And I poured upon you purifying waters and you were purified. Okay. And it's for this reason that the flood is called Me Noach, the waters of Noach. Because as a result of the flood, a peaceful spirit rested upon the land. <coughs> and that answers sorry, Okay, and that answers our question. Are we clear with that with that question? Why did Hashem destroy the the world with water, with a flood in the way that he did, because the, the purpose of the flood was to purify. Now we're going to take what we've understood from Parshat Noah and from main, and from the concept of what we said in Rabin, that there's a certain waters of challenges that can never wash away the love, and we're going to now see how these waters correspond to the challenges of making a physical livelihood, as we started to discuss yesterday. Okay. So, page 10. Vehine now, shiabud haparnasa, the obligation to make a living. Nikra gamken meinach, are also called the waters of Noach. Ukamama razal, as our sages say, shabachar lo Avram Avinu, that Avram Avinu chose shiabud neged gehenom. He chose the challenge of making a living in place of gehenom. There's a story in the Gemara. Well, I think it's in the Mishnah, and then the Gemara asked a bunch of questions on it, that Hashem came to Avram, and he said that in order for the Jewish people to get the elevation that the Jewish people get, and the Torah and the mitzvahs, they're going to have to either go through a process of Gehenom in this world, physical torture and suffering, or what's, what it calls, in the, in the, in the Gemara, it calls Malchios. Malchios means being slaves basically, but not being slaves to a king, being slaves to making a living. That this is something that we have to continuously chase after since the beginning of time. And he gave him a choice. He said, you can choose one or the other. Either physical, I guess it's called per perjury? Is that what it's called? <coughs> purgatory, thank you. Like purgatory in this world as a cleansing process to be able to, as a cleansing process to be able to, re you know, achieve the ultimate level that you can achieve. Uh, the Jewish people as a whole can achieve, or what was called shiabud, slavery. Slavery in the context of having to continuously work in order to make a living. And which one did Avraham Avinu choose? He chose shiabud. He chose the fact 
that we have to, the process basically of, and the challenge of obtaining a livelihood in this world. So we know that this is a reality that we're living it with. And the Altrevi is comparing this reality to what's called the waters of Noach. <coughs> the waters of Noach, which threatened to drown Noach, right? So too, these challenges threaten to drown us and to consume us. So, as it says here, Shekmo, this is explaining what our sages say about Avram. Shekmo she'ifshar, as it is impossible, la'anashama for the soul, la'vobagan Eden, to come to the Garden of Eden, to paradise, le'enot miziva shechina, to bask in the rays of Hashem's light, ad she'tered kodem lechen le'gehenem, until it first descends to Gehenem. This is a truth that Chabad doesn't talk about a lot, um, but every, every single soul before it can go into heaven has to first go to Gehenna. It's not like the worst of the worst of the, of the sinners of Israel go to Gehenna. Every single soul has to go to Gehenna. And again, it's the same idea as the flood. It's not as a punishment. Rather, it's as a purification. And, um, and the idea is <coughs> that in Gehenna, there's pure souls. There's no such thing as any physicality whatsoever in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't exist. Um, but our soul, because it came down here into this world, just by the fact that it existed in the a physical body and in this physical reality, it gets a, what's called humrius, physicality, attaches itself to the soul in some way. And in order for the soul to truly appreciate the light of Hashem and Gan Eden, it has to cleanse itself of, these, of the physicality. Okay, so physicality plus also maybe the sins that we also uh, gained along the way. But even somebody, it says that um, even Sadikim have to pass through what's called the Nahar Dinor. The Nahar Dinor is a river of fire um, before they go into Gan Eden. But if somebody <coughs> never sinned throughout their whole life, they just pass through and don't feel anything. Um, but if a soul, if a soul uh, accumulated, I guess, dust on the way, on its journey down here, then it, it can be actually a painful process. But the idea is that it's not pain for the sake of pain. It's not even pain for the sake of punishment. It's purgatory, is that what it's called? Purgatory for the sake of purification, for the, for the reward of Ganadin. We are not able to experience Ganadin without first getting rid of the physicality. They're just the two do not work together. So as we see, just as our soul has to go through a purification process before going to Ganadin, so too, down here, we have to go through some sort of purification process. And that purification process, Avram chose that to be, that we are, so to speak, slaves to making a livelihood. And the challenges that come with living in the physical world. So as we see, oh, this is an interesting story. As it says about, have you guys heard about Acher? Elisha ben Avuya? He's called Acher, the other one, because they don't want to name him um, in the Gemara. But he was a very, very famous Sadiq. He was a Tana. And he, um, there's a whole bunch of different versions of what happened to him. Um, one version is that he went up to the parties with Rabbi Akiva. He had this whole crazy spiritual experience. Rabbi Akiva brought three other sa- three or four other sages with him. <coughs> and he was the sage that <coughs> became a heretic. He came back after that experience. He became a complete heretic. There's other stories, other versions of what happened. But he went from being the greatest Torah scholar of his time being the greatest heretic. And the Gemara details different stories that he did to prove you know, just, just what a heretic he was. Um, when he died, they had a bit of a problem up in heaven. Because on the one hand, he had so much merit in his name, so much Torah, 
that he taught and that he had learned and many good deeds from that time. And on the other hand, he had all of the sin from the second part of his life. And, um, and he, he never did teshuva. He's not one of these, he's, you know, he's not like um, Elazar ben Dudaya who was a sinner his whole life and then did teshuva in one moment. Um, he never did teshuva. They didn't know what to do with him. Should we put him in Gehenna? Or should we put him in Ganeidin? And the people in Gehenna said, no, we can't take him. He has so much Torah, so much merit. People in Ganeidin said, we can't take him. He has so much sin. Um, so they didn't know what to do. And his student, Rabbi Meir, who continued to be a student till the end of his life, he learned Torah from him his entire life. The stories of him walking. Have you guys heard the story that he was riding on his horse on Shabbat? Acher, Elisha ben Avoya. Rabbi Meir was walking next to him and hearing Torah from him. And then Elisha ben Avoya said, wait, stop. We're about to leave the Tchum Shabbat. You're not allowed to continue further. Um, so he was his student his whole life. He learned Torah from him. And he said <coughs> that when I die, I'm going to make sure that he goes to Gehenna. It says here, Mutav Delidaina, it's better to be judged in order to then go into the world to come. That's what Rabbi Meir said. It's better that he should first go to Gehenna and be purified so that he can then get it into, into Ganeidon. And the Gemara says, very interesting, he said, when I die, I'm going to make sure that they get him in. And when Rabbi Meir died, it says that smoke started to rise up from the grave of Acher. Smoke. And um, then he had another student, Rabbi Elazar, El, El I think, who said, when I die, I'm going to make sure he gets into Gan Eden. I'm going, to gr- I'm going to grab him out of Gehenna and make sure he goes into Gan Eden. And when, uh, I think it was Rabbi Elazar or Rabbi Eliezer, sorry. When he died, the smoke stopped. This is an interesting story. But the point here, Mutav Delidaina, it's better to be judged in order to then get into the world to come. So we, we get judged, we go through this purification process in order to then go into the world to come, not in order to be, in, in order to be punished, um, which is why like the saddest state of the soul that the soul could possibly ever be in is not to be in one or the other, right? And that's where all these weird stories of like debuks and stuff happen of souls attaching onto people and doing crazy things because they, they're wandering. They're not, they're not here and they're not there. Um, so the point again is that purgatory, suffering, floods, are not there as punishment and are not there for suffering for its own sake. They're there to serve as a purification process so that we can then reach heights that we could never have reached without it. So we see we see this idea of immersing in what's called the Nahar Dinar, the river of fire. As is explained in another place that every single soul has to go through this river of fire in order to enter into Ganeda. <coughs> Sorry. Okay, so we're going to see, oh, <coughs> okay, we're getting there, the cough's getting better. Okay. By the way, I got stuck with a cough in the summer as well. Uh-huh. Was when I'm pregnant, my immune system just like, it doesn't, it doesn't fight anything. No, so thank God, I'm feeling better, but the cough just takes its time, <coughs> unfortunately. But yeah, I did have a cough in the summer that wouldn't go away. <laughs> I think everyone's like on the uh, on the other end of it. I I hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So come on, Ken. Aliyadeshia, but let's go back inside. Uh, is everyone following so far? Yeah. Amazing. Um, page eleven. I, again, I, t- I, I told you, come on, that before I travel, we'll finish. <laughs> but again, we'll see. We'll see. But we're gonna we're gonna be doing a, a bit of reading inside. Because uh, there's a, but again, hopefully the English is, is helping. 
כמו כן על ידי שיעורים. The same situation that we've just discussed in context of Gehenim and the Naradinar, um, the process of purgatory in order to get into um, in order to get into Gan Eden, the same is true with this concept of the obligation of having to make a living and the challenge of living in this physical world. Yecholim la'alot l'mala mala, it enables the soul to ascend higher and higher, l'madrega yotergavot to an even higher level. And we mentioned this all the way at the beginning, that the soul descends from its perch up in Gan Eden, from basking in the rays of the Shekhinah in the light of Hashem down into this world, not so that it can eventually just get back to the same place, but so that it can get an elevation even higher than when it started out. And what the argument that the Altar is going to make in this mimer is that what enables the soul to reach an even higher level than it had reached before it came down here, this concept of called Shiabud, the challenges that we face in the physical world and that we confront, give our soul an elevation as we're going to discuss. It says, when we're speaking about Shiabud, when we speak about this obligation to make a living, we're not coming to say, the fact that we have a king upon us now. Well, right now we don't have a king, but the fact that we have, that we are servants, so to speak, to, to the state, or whatever that means, that we have rules we have to follow, and we have people who are above us. That's not what we mean when we say Shiabud. And the fact that there's someone above us who takes tax from us. Because even in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, which is considered a time of Geulah, a time of redemption, it was not a time of exile, we had a Jewish king. And the kings would take a lot of tax from the Jews. As we know, that a tenth, every person had to give. And that was aside from the trimmers and the maestras. If you go and look at all the tax that the Jewish people had to give in the time of, um, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, it's like way more than like, California, I know, or even Israel has very high tax. Um, 10% had to go just to the king, and then 10% had to go for the Trumas and Maestras, and this percent had to go for the Levim and for the Kohanim, and like, there was a lot, a lot of tax. So the fact that there's a king above us telling us, so to speak, what to do, um, and taking m- tax from us, that's not what we mean here when we speak about this concept of Shiabud. We speak about the challenge of making a living. Because that did not exist when, because that existed in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, but in the time of the Beit Mikdash, this concept of Shiabut did not exist. So what are we referring to? So Elahakavanahi. The intention is, when we speak about the challenge of making a living, Shabizman Beit Mikdash Hayakayam, that when the Beit Mikdash was standing, Hayanimshach Bracha Vahashpa Atsuma, there was a tremendous amount of blessing that was drawn down. to the point that Eretz Yisrael Haitah was called. Eretz Zavat Chalav Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey. Shelo al which was not in a natural way whatsoever. K'moshe Katuv, as is written, Bagmara in the Talmud, Sof Masechet Ktubot. At the end of Ktubot, it says, There was no such thing in the time of the Beit HaMikdash as worrying about making a living. So you had to go out into your field and you had to work. And then you had to take taxes from that and give it to a real king. But this concept of Shiabut didn't exist. Why? Because it was, it was fair. It was, you went out to work, you made money, and you had the money. What's the reality today? You go out to work, and most people don't make enough money. 
or that it's right. It's it's not a, a clear give and take. Time of the better Mikdash, it was very very obvious. You went, you did your whatever amount of work that you did, and you always had enough money to feed your family and to give money to the poor and to take care of everybody around you. So there was no such thing as the worry that came with making a living. There was the fact of that you had to go and make a living, right? But the worry didn't exist because in the land of Israel at that time, it was completely against nature. And just the fact that you went out into your field, there was food to harvest. There was what to eat. Yeah. What do you, so what do you mean there was enough for everyone because you just said that there was enough money to get to the poor? Ah, well, so not everybody had a field, right? Right. Not everybody even had a portion in the land. So yeah. in those days, poor many times was, poor usually was like this, the Levian and the Kwanim, because they were not given a portion of land, so where are they supposed to get food from? Yeah. So they were automatically dependent upon others. And then also it's called the widows and the orphans, because, um, because they didn't necessarily have their own land, because maybe their husband, the, the land went according to the men, which is the whole story of Slavkan and his daughters coming to um, Moshe and, and wanting to claim the land. So if, if, you know, if God forbid somebody's husband dies, they become in the state of, of, of poor. Right, um, so there were poor people, but those who had land, those who had what to work, had enough money to take care of themselves and all the people who didn't have land, mm. and which is not a normal thing. Usually, you know, there's sometimes there's, I don't know, the crops just don't work out, things just don't work, and people struggle, even if they have a field, even if they have a source of livelihood. When it came to the time of the Beit Hamikdash, there was no such thing. You had a source of livelihood, it gave you livelihood every single time and it gave you and it gave you enough to also support those who did not have an automatic source of livelihood um, that's a good question how could there be poor people if it was if, it, if there was so much abundance um, but that's that that's an interesting reality of the world that there will always be poor people and there will always be those who have to give and those who have to take Hashem created the world that way um, but as we know today it says the Atta nowadays however every single person has Yagiyot, challenges, and worries about making a living. And he has to be involved in the material world. And this is what we're referring to when we say the Mayim Rabim. We're not referring to the fact that we're in Galut, that we have a king over us, that we have somebody taking tax from us. We're referring to the fact that just to get by day to day, is a challenge. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't just get thrown on us. We have to go out into the physical world, confront the physicality and the challenges that come along with that, in order just to get through the day. And these are called Mayim Rabin. These are called the many waters that threaten to overwhelm and to drown us. But they're also called, as we explained, Meinoch, Shenikra'im Meinoch, the waters of peace, because it brings a peaceful state to the soul, as we're going to explain. Even though the soul gets so caught up in something that's completely the opposite of what a soul should be thinking about, which is, how do I get through the day? How do I make a living, right? And again, making a living comes in many forms of different people. Even if somebody has a lot of money, there's always the worry of living in the physical world. Even though the soul gets caught up in this, it's actually causing an elevation to the soul, as we're going to explain. Lafi. And we'll end off with this for today. Through these Mayim Rabin, through these challenges, the Neshama 
gets, rises up to an even higher level from before when it was not invested in a physical body. When it was only basking in the rays of Hashem's light. So before the soul came down into this world, it was in a very high spiritual level and state. After it's gone through the challenges of this physical world and it goes back up, it's reached a level that's even higher than before it descended, which is very contrary to what we would think. We would think that the soul is in this very high spiritual level. It comes down here and then it goes through a descent. But the truth is that's the idea of what's called a descent for the purpose of an ascent, which is what we're going to discuss. It descends into the challenges of this physical world and into physicality, which is there and which is concealing God, but it's in order that it should reach a level that it could never have reached if it hadn't gone through that. So we'll continue to discuss this. We'll discuss tomorrow the process of what that looks like. It sounds nice. Soul reaches a level that it couldn't have reached if it didn't go through challenges. But it sounds nice, but like, how does that work? So that's what we're going to discuss tomorrow, how that works, how that plays out, um, and the reason why the soul truly gets an elevation from this process. Does anyone have any questions or comments?